Thanks, Ev. Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? It's good to see you. Uh, so glad uh, to be able to worship with you the last Sunday before Christmas, which uh, just is crazy to me to even uh, consider that, to think about that. Um, but I'm really excited this morning. Uh, Ev just prayed out of uh, the book of James, uh, where James says, God help us not to just be hearers of the word, and, but doers of the word. And, and we're going to read a chapter in scripture. Actually, we're going to study a chapter of scripture together this morning that I think many of us, especially if you've been in the church for a long time, followed Jesus for a long time, many of us think everything we're going to study, these are things we know. These are things we have heard. But are they things that we actually apply to our life? Are they things that we're actually encouraged by throughout our week? This is one of those passages of scripture that I think is easy for us to hear and accept, but to actually live according to it's, it's so much more difficult. Uh, we've been in an Advent series called The Promise of Hope, and we've been looking at these Old Testament passages about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, and the promise of hope that the coming of Jesus was to God's people, and, and the promise that it is to us as God's people as well. And so we've looked at passages that talk about how when, when Jesus comes, he's going to bring justice to the earth. We've looked at passages that talks about when Jesus comes, he's going to be a good king who's going to rule over us and rule us into goodness and flourishing. And this morning, um, the passage that we're going to read here in Zechariah 3 it's going to be all about the promise that when Jesus comes, and because Jesus came, and when he returns, we will be washed of all of our guilt and all of our shame. When you came in this morning, um, hopefully you received just a half sheet with our passage on it. If I ever do this, right, like print this out and give it to you, it, it means that I want you to have this on your lap, if you have a pen, sorry, I should have brought a bunch of pens. If you have a pen, get the pen out, ready to annotate, all right? I'm actually even gonna annotate a bit myself on the screen this morning because this is one of those passages of scripture that I want us all to, to lean in together and study together. It's one of those passages of scripture that I think brings the entire Bible together helps us to understand how the Old Testament is connected to the New Testament, actually helps you to understand how all of the weird imagery in the Bible, when you read things that are kind of odd, like that Isaiah 6 passage that we read earlier this morning, and even things in the passage that we're going to read this morning, how that actually connects to your life. It's not just ethereal, weird imagery over here, but there's real meaning. And so I want us to dig in together uh, with Zechariah chapter Three. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dig in. We're going to go through the 10 verses. We're going to rip it apart as much as we can, squeeze out of it as much as we can. And then I'm going to end. I have five encouragements. They're going to be quick encouragements, but I have five encouragements out of Zechariah 3 that I hope this morning that all of us, we don't just hear, but we're able to be encouraged by them and that they impact our life uh, throughout our week. Before we jump in and start reading Zechariah 3, let me just give you a little context because it's going to be really important 
Zechariah, the book of Zechariah is the second to last book in your Old Testament. All right, so it comes on the, the, the concluding parts of Old Testament history, on the latter parts of Old Testament history. All right, so let me just give you the quick rundown of the Old Testament. I promise, super quick, right? We start at creation. God creates everything. Then through the book of Genesis, God raises up Abraham, which turns into the nation of Israel, God's people. They go into slavery and exodus, but God rescues them and leads them with Moses to the promised land, to the land where they will set up shop and they'll live, and that will be their land. And then they're ruled by the period of Judges, book of Judges, and then eventually Israel asks God, hey, we want a king. And so God gives them kings. We got King Saul and King David, King Solomon. There's a lot of conflict in the land. And so actually the kingdom split in two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and they were ruled by kings. And the vast majority of those kings were bad, did not lead God's people towards living in God's ways or trusting God. So God punishes them through sending the Babylonians in to destroy everything and carry off Israel into exile. All right, so your Old Testament is really organized as pre-exile. Then we have a bunch of books and prophets and history during exile. And then the latter part of your Old Testament is after God actually allows his people to return to their land, begin to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, uh, and come back. This is post-exile, right? This is the after-exile part of the Old Testament. And that's where Zechariah is. Zechariah is a prophet speaking to God's people after the exile, after God allows his people to return home. And that's gonna be really important for you to understand Zechariah chapter three. All right, so here's what I want us to do. I want us to dig in uh, to this scripture together. So get your pen out if you have it, get your half sheet out. Um, Zechariah is organized into several different visions that Zechariah as a prophet gets from God. So Zechariah chapter three is one of those visions. And we're just gonna read it and see what it says to us this morning. So let's start. Zechariah 3, verse 1. It's on the screen behind me and in your lap, hopefully. It says this. Then he showed me. All right, so we just stop there for a second. He, that's God, gave me, Zechariah, a vision. So God showed me, Zechariah, this vision. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So let me just set the scene of the vision so you kind of understand what's going on here. So Zechariah, right? That's right here. He's me, sorry. All right, this is Zechariah. He's standing watching this vision unfold and he sees Joshua the high priest. One of the things you gotta know about Israel after the exile is they didn't really have any leaders or kings or anything like that. So the high priest really was kind of like the leader of Israel. So Joshua the high priest in this vision represents the people of God, right? He represents all of God's people. So we could even say in a sense that he represents us. So when you read Joshua the high priest, you could even say, I, I, I'm gonna put myself into this vision right there in that spot. I'm standing before God. And it says the angel of the Lord here to represent God. 
And then it says, and Satan is standing right next to Joshua, right next to God's people, and he's there accusing them. Now, in this scripture here, this word Satan, it's kind of ambiguous. Uh, the Hebrew word there is hasatan, which actually means the accuser. And so this word isn't just used for Satan himself, but for really any sort of accuser or adversary. And so it's an ambiguous word. Scholars are kind of confused. Is this Satan himself or just any accuser? And I think that that's actually really helpful for us as we try to understand this passage. You have the people of God standing before God, and there's an accuser there accusing them, all of God's people, of all kinds of things, of all kinds of wrongdoing. I think in your life, you have three main accusers. I think Satan himself, our enemy, is one of your accusers. That's one of his primary weapons against you is he's going to accuse you of not being good enough for God's grace and his mercy and his love. And he does a really good job of setting up your second greatest accuser, and that's you. Of convincing you that when you stand before God, you are not worthy. When you think about the week that you just had, you are not worthy to pray to God. You're not worthy to ask God for things, for his blessing, for his help, for healing, for whatever it is. I think you're your second greatest accuser. And then of course, we have other people who accuse us of things. So here's the scene, we're standing before God and there's an accuser there accusing us, accusing Joshua, accusing the people of God for who knows what, it doesn't detail it for us, but all we know is Satan is trying to convince God, you shall not bless this person because they're not worthy of it. So there's the scene. That's verse one. So we go to verse two. We're in our vision, and it says this, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, O accuser. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, God's people, rebuke you. Is not this a brand, okay, weird Bible word for basically a stick, is this not a stick plucked from the fire? I love this. So we have this scene. Satan is accusing God's people, and God is not hearing any of it. Notice in this verse that we don't hear any substance of the accusation against God's people. No substance of what he's accusing them of. God doesn't need you or me or God's people to have an accuser to know where we struggle or to know where we mess up or to know what our sinfulness is. And so the, the imagery that I get in verse two here is basically of a five-year-old tattletaling. The accuser standing before God, God, do you know what they did? God, they said this bad word, they said that, they did this, they did that. And God's like, it's like nails on a chalkboard annoying to God. Like, stop. Like, do you know who I am? Do, do you think I need to hear you accuse them of anything? And so it says, the Lord rebukes the accuser. Get out of here. I, I don't wanna hear it. I don't need you to tell me. And here's what I love and the reason why is because it says, the Lord who has 
chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. I've already chosen to have a plan for my people. Satan, what you have to say isn't going to change anything. What you have to say for yourself isn't going to change anything. And it says this, is not this, God's people, a stick plucked from the fire? Meaning I just rescued them from exile. I just brought them back from a land in exile and I'm letting them rebuild in their temple. I am already lavishing blessing upon them. I already have a plan for him. Your accusation will not change it. The plan is already in place. It's moving forward. Is not this a stick plucked straight from the fire? Satan, the accuser, you, other people, no power over what God has already planned. Verse three. So it says now, Joshua, remember God's people, you, me, was standing before the Lord, before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So immediately we get reassured here in the text a bit that it's not as if Joshua, it's not as if God's people, it's not as if you and me stand before God righteous. In the scripture, this idea of filthy clothes and clean clothes is biblical imagery for righteousness. Filthy clothes is your unrighteous, clean clothes, right? You're being washed white as snow. That's the idea of being given righteousness. And so God's people stand before God filthy. It's not as if some of the things that the accuser says is untrue. God just doesn't want to hear it from the accuser. God doesn't want to listen to what he has to say. We do stand before God with filthy garments. And so what God's going to do as we move through the passage is he's going to say, wait, I'm gonna deal with this in my own way. The accuser has a way that they want God to be able to deal with our unrighteousness, with our sin, with our mess up, with everything else. The accuser has his preferred method. We might have our anticipated method of how God should deal with our sin, but God has his own method of how he's going to deal with our filthy clothes. Verse as we continue, it says, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, to Joshua, to us, to God's people, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And so as you read the scripture, I want you to ask a question of the text. When you, when you read the Bible, you need to ask a lot of questions. Don't let verses like this just roll by you. So here's my question. Who did God instruct to remove the filthy garments? And who does God say is going to clothe Joshua with the clean, pure garments? Does God say, Joshua, take off your filthy clothes? Doesn't do that. 
He, he commands somebody. It says, and he says, uh, where is it? And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. So there's others who are doing this work of removing the filthy garments. So what does that mean? Who are those people? What are they doing? Well, that's a question we need to hold up to the text as we continue to study it. Who are those people? And then it says, and behold, I have taken your iniquity away and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And so what we learn here in verse four is that Joshua in this text is doing absolutely nothing other than standing there. Absolutely nothing. He wasn't instructed to remove the clothes. He wasn't instructed to put the clothes on. He's standing there being ministered to by the Lord. So let's keep going and learn what that means. Verse five. I love this. And I said, well, who's this I? That's Zechariah. This is the bystander just watching the vision unfold. And I said, Zechariah says, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. I love this text because you have this imagery of Joshua, the people of God. Their unrighteousness is being removed from them. He's being given righteousness to put on. We don't understand yet how that's actually happening, but Zechariah, as he watches it happen, just gets wrapped up into the old thing and he jumps in. He gets so excited about the redemption that's unfolding before his eyes and he becomes a cheerleader for it. And he's like, let's just finish the work. Put a clean turban on his head. First Peter Chapter five, verse four, I want you to write this on your notes if you're taking notes with me. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There are several texts within the New Testament that talks about the completion of your redemption, the completion of your righteousness is that you receive a crown. And so Zechariah here is basically, let's finish the job, put a clean turban on his head. Let's see this person completely redeemed of all of their sin. And then the angel of the Lord is there and it is done. So what I love about this is how Zechariah gets caught up into the redemption that's happening. He begins to become a cheerleader for it. And that's gonna be really important for later as we begin to think about what this all means for me. So now we have the people of God They've been completely made righteous, not by any action of their own, right? The accuser was shunned away and they're completely made righteous. And we move on in the text, verse six and seven. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So Joshua was just completely cleansed, his filthy garments removed, new clean garments given to him, his accuser is shunned away, and then God says, I give you this charge. Follow my ways. Live a different life. Follow after me. Know my word. Joshua here, the people of God, is called to a completely new way of living. 
a way of living, of following God's commands, trusting what God has to say and not following after their own ways like Israel did for so much of its history. But you know what's fascinating about verse six and seven? Remember, ask questions of the text. What's fascinating about this is the order, the order of what we have read so far in Zechariah chapter three. Remember the order. People of God standing before God, accuser. God shuns the accuser because he's already chosen this person before him. And then he cleanses them, takes their filthy garments off, puts their clean garments on, and then calls them to live differently. That is so backwards from the order that we are so autom- we automatically, instinctually live by. Right? The way the accuser would have it, the way that we think God operates is this order of live differently, prove yourself, show that you have the strength to kind of discipline yourself the way that God wants you, and then God will accept you and clothe you and bring you into his family. Right? The order that we often live by is prove yourself to God, follow Jesus, then he will crown you. But what we're reading in Zechariah 3, what the scripture says from cover to cover is that the way God does it, the way God deals with unrighteousness is he crowns you and then calls you to live differently. Like when, I, when we opened the, 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 uh, the, the sermon today and when Evan prayed out of James, I mean, and we said, okay, it's God help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Like this is one of those areas of scripture where I just think we so struggle applying to our life, being encouraged by it, believing. This idea that God actually will complete your redemption. Perfectly righteous. And then he leads and calls you to a different way of living. It's not the other way around. It wasn't the other way around in the Old Testament. It's not the other way around in the New Testament. This is God's way of dealing with our sin. This is God's way of dealing with our unrighteousness. He crowns us and then calls us to a completely new way to live. And church, I think we, Big C Church, we've, we've done a good job of demonstrating the world's way in this. I think the church, so much, I think we demonstrate this way of accept our morals, accept our ethics, accept our way of living. Show us that you're serious about living in this way, and then we will acknowledge the things that God will do for you. Then you're welcome in this family. But in Zechariah 3, I'm just saying, that's unbiblical. God crowns, and then he says, now we're gonna live differently. God crowns, and then he sanctifies. We are justified in the sight of God through Christ, and then we are called to a new life that God's going to empower within us. I find it to be such good news that verses six and seven weren't verses one and two in Zechariah three. So the question that we have of the text now, as we work through it, we're at verse seven, is, okay, God, how? How is Joshua redeemed? How is his dirty clothes removed and 
clean clothes put on. If that's imagery for righteousness, what's going on here? God, how is it just for you to crown people and then call them to live differently? How can it not be the other way around? Verses eight, nine, and 10 are gonna answer that question for us. Here's what I love about verses eight and nine in particular is here in Zechariah 3, 8 and 9, three biblical images and prophecies are all gonna collide together in just a couple of verses to answer that question. Let's look at verse eight. It says this, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, hear now, people of God, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. It says this, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, if you've been hanging with us over the Advent series that we've been in, that phrase, the branch, ought to be familiar to you. The branch is a biblical image. Um, We read it last week in Isaiah chapter 11. It's referring back to the Davidic covenant where God promises David a king who will come on his throne in his line. His kingdom will last forever, and he will be our good king who will lead us into the kingdom of God. That's the branch. Look at verse nine, and then we're gonna bring it all together. It says this, for behold, on the stone, so we have a branch, and now we have a stone that I have set before Joshua. On a single stone with seven eyes, here's that odd biblical imagery, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Let me break that down for you. And so in this image, remember, this is a vision that Zechariah is having. So, you know, weird imagery is kind of part of biblical visions, okay? And so Zechariah is seeing this all play out, and God says, I'm going to bring my branch. He's going to be the way in which I'm going to remove the filthy garments and put on the clean garments. And he says, for behold, I put a stone that I set before Joshua, this big stone he puts before Joshua, and on this stone is seven Eyes. And you're like, Alan, seven eyes, what is that? Well, I want you to go look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. So this is a vision of the future, right? The Apostle John, he's looking at the future, and this is what he says. He says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So John's having a vision of the future, and he sees Jesus himself enthroned on the throne of God, in the kingdom of God, right? And it says, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The number seven in the Bible is the number of completion. And this idea of seven eyes is the idea of the sovereignty of God. Jesus has been given kingship over all of the earth, and he has complete sovereignty through all the earth. That's what seven eyes mean. It's just a symbol for that. So, so far we have the branch, right? We have the stone with seven eyes, and then it says, I will engrave its inscription on this stone. And if you think about um, ancient architecture and all of that, what is the stone of a building that has the inscription on it? It's the cornerstone. And so when we think about this stone here, I want you to think of Acts 4.11. Peter's preaching to, I believe the Sanhedrin at that point. And he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, the, the Israel, 
which has become the cornerstone. I know that was a lot. You're like, Alan, this is like all over the place. In one verse, in two verses, we have the collision of three different images of Jesus throughout the whole Bible. You have the branch, he's the promised king. You have the cornerstone, he's the completion of the temple. You have the seven eyes, he's king that's gonna reign over all the earth with complete sovereignty. And then it says here in Zechariah 3, 9, and I will, through this stone, through the branch, through all these things, remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Zechariah is screaming out to us today that it is Jesus, Jesus himself, the promised king, the cornerstone, who is going to be the one who can remove our filthy garments and put on our clean garments. He's the completion of the temple. He's the one where the last and final sacrifice will happen that will remove all of our iniquity. When verse nine says that he will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, it can be speaking of nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, for by that one offering, he, that is Jesus, forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Hebrews, if you're writing this down, 1014. How does God cleanse us? He does it through his promised Messiah who's coming. The branch, the cornerstone. And Jesus comes and his method is to put on himself our filthy clothes and to give us his clean clothes. The last and final sacrifice that is offered, the completion of the temple, is Jesus going to the cross and hanging there, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that he can put a crown on our head and then lead us into a different and new life into the kingdom of God. And if you're here today and, and you don't know who Jesus is or you're wrestling if you believe in Jesus, I, the reason why I wanted you to see Zechariah 3 is because I wanted you to see how the Bible is unified in its message. That what it means to be righteous, what it means to be right with God, what it means to be forgiven, it, it's not to prove yourself, but it's to accept the blood of Jesus, the one who can take away your iniquity, the one who will remove your filthy garments and put on clean ones for you. And then trust him for the rest of your life, following him, following his word. If we go to verse 10, I love this. It says this, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. In that day, he's referring back to when in the single day, Jesus redeems all of our iniquity in one day. So listen, church, we're in that day. That's today. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, he goes, every one of you, you're gonna go to your neighbors and you're gonna invite people in. And what I love about this is that Jesus, he's not saying, I'm gonna command you to go out and invite people in. He's saying, no, you will 
You get to. You get to go out to your neighbors and invite them in and tell them of the good news that they can have all of their sin forgiven and they can be given a crown and called to a new, better, joyous life. And that's the day that we're in today. Jesus is our king. He is our cornerstone. He takes away all of our iniquity. We get to follow him and we get to invite our neighbors into this. That's Zechariah 3, 1 to 10. And I hope that you'll take that half page, hopefully if you made a few notes, and you'll just read that this week and you'll wrestle with it this week and you'll understand it better this week. But as we close our time together, let me just give you five quick encouragements out of this text. Now that we've really dug through it, five quick encouragements out of this text. Here's number one. You have an accuser and the Lord won't hear it. I need you to know that this morning. I need you to know that tomorrow. I need you to know that if the the holidays get tough with family and stuff, all right? Like, you have an accuser, and that accuser is going to try to convince you that you have failed too much, that your heart is too rotten for God or others to love you. That accuser is gonna try to convince you that if people really knew you, if they really knew your thoughts, if they really knew your heart, if they really knew what was going on, then they would walk away from you. And you need to know this morning that the Lord will not hear it. It has zero sway over who you are in Christ. And it has zero sway over God's plan for your life. Remember what God said to the accuser in Zechariah 3. He said, rebuke you. I've already chosen them. Rebuke, I already plucked them out of the fire. My plan is already in place. You have an accuser and the Lord won't hear it. That leads to number two. Encouragement number two is this. God in Christ has made you clean. Remember God's order. God crowns you and then calls you to a new life. God in Christ has made you clean. The work that Jesus, our cornerstone, has done has been completed. It is finished. And that he has removed all of your filthy garments and he has clothed you with clean ones. If you trust in him, that work has been completed. There's nothing that you need to do to maintain that. It's so radical to think that there's nothing that you can do to make your garments filthy. If you trust in Jesus. The work has been finished. Encouragement number three is this. God has called you to a new life. Like As followers of Jesus, you need to know this. He has called you to a new life. There really isn't any, any doesn't make any sense in what we believe and what the Bible says to accept what Christ has done for us on the cross and then it doesn't change anything of how you live your life. No, God calls you to a new life. He gives you a new heart in order to live that new life. And that new life is good. And there are times that we don't think that what God is leading us into will be good. But we have to look back at what he's already done for us. He's already plucked us out of the fire. He's already chosen us. He's already put clean garments on us. How could we question 
if where God is leading us is good or not, even if we can't see it. He has called you into a new life, and that is sometimes hard to live according to, but we know that he's good. Encouragement number four. I love this one. You're called to be a cheerleader and not an accuser. I love Zechariah in verse, I forgot what verse was it, verse five, was it? Yeah, verse five. He's watching the vision play out and he just jumps in, put a clean crown on that guy's head. And it just made me reflect this week in the church and the reputation that the church has in the world. Do we more have a reputation of being an accuser? God, here are all the ways why this person doesn't deserve your mercy and your grace and your love. Here are all the reasons why we can't welcome that person into this place. Here are all the reasons why we need to be careful. As if we forgot the order that God redeems people. And I know some will say, well, Alan, you know, we're called to hold each other accountable. We're called to, you know, admonish, speak the truth in love. And that's true. We are called to do that. But there is a way to Speak the truth in love, admonish one another as a cheerleader for redemption, and there's a way to admonish one another as an accuser. And we know the difference. We know the difference of going to someone and saying, I am about to say something hard to you, but I say it to you in love because I love you and I'm cheerleading your redemption. I'm cheerleading the things that God is doing inside of you. And there are ways to say things like that where we go and what we're communicating is until you get this right, I just don't think that you're gonna be welcome here. They're, they're different. And as we interact with the world around us, are we cheerleading redemption? Or are we accusers? Are we accusers in one another's lives? I think that's something that we gotta think about and pray about. We've been called to be a cheerleader for redemption It's so easy for us to forget that we too were plucked out of the fire. And the last thing is this, encouragement number five, we get to invite our neighbors into this. We get to invite our neighbors into a life where shame and accusation and self-loathing and all those things are just obliterated. Not out of obligation, but out of love, right? Jesus says, you're gonna get to invite people in and come under my vine and my fig tree, right? That brings up images of the book of Jonah and and, and other scriptures where it's this idea of invite people into the shade out of the scorching heat. Invite people into peace and comfort and joy. I mean, just think of some of the people that you know who are lost. They don't know Christ, and, and their life is full of maybe regret or their life is full of shame or their life is full of just self-consciousness, self-loathing. And just imagine what they would be like. Imagine what their life could be if they had the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were set free from all of that. We get to invite our neighbors into this. We get to participate in the redemption of people like Zechariah did in this vision. And so those are our five encouragements out of Zechariah 3. Those are the very things that the people of God were encouraged by before Christ came. All of this is going to occur. 
when Christ returns. And so Jesus himself, he is our promised hope. He is our promised hope of cleansing from all of our guilt and shame. And so my church, my prayer today as a result, as we dig into Zechariah 3, um, is that you leave here encouraged. You leave here reminded of some gospel truths that your heart so easily forgets. We so easily listen to the voice of the accuser than the Bible. And so my hope this morning is that you leave here going, I think I know better how to distinguish between what the accuser is saying and what the Bible actually says. If you are in Christ, there is a crown of righteousness on your head. You belong to him. There's nothing the accuser can do about it because he has done all the work. So trust him, follow him into that new life. And let's go get our neighbors in on it. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful, God, that the accuser has zero power over your plans, has zero power over your gospel, zero sway over your love for us. And God, I just pray for all of us in this room that we would leave here encouraged by that and that our hearts would remain encouraged by it. And Lord, I confess there are days where my heart forgets that and and the accuser's voice gets louder in my heart and in my head. And so God, that's why we need to be in your word to be reminded of what your word actually says because there's so many times that we get it confused. So God, encourage us this week as we go up into Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus who accomplished all these things for us. God, I pray that Zechariah 3 would be a daily reminder to us of your love and your grace and your mercy. God, I ask you in the name of Christ, would you just rain down gospel encouragement on your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.